Hello, and welcome to Under Our Feet. Today, we're going back to our chronologic march through Wisconsin's deep past. For episode 5 and a subsequent bonus interview, we took a detour over to Minnesota to look at the science behind copper sulfide mining and its risks, as well as the cultural importance of the clean water that mining might threaten. I didn't say it then, but this fight over sulfide mining is an echo of earlier controversies in both Minnesota and in Wisconsin, notably at the Crandon Mine, which was adjacent to the Mole Lake Reservation of the Sacoagon Ojibwe, and near Rice Lake and a tributary of the Wolf River, which flows down to the Menominee and Mohican Reservations. There, opposition to a proposed sulfide mine culminated in a Supreme Court ruling that tribes could set restrictive environmental standards that would affect the proposed mine. And finally, it resulted in the purchase of the site by the Mole Lake Ojibwe and the Forest County Potawatomi, who have no plans to develop it. So even though I focused on a Minnesota site for the last few weeks, the same geology and politics apply over here in Wisconsin as well. Today, we're taking a bit of a break from mining, and we're learning about caves. But first, our regular reminder to take a second to rate and review this podcast. It helps other people find the show. Every once in a while, just to let you know that I do read these reviews, I'll read one out loud on the show. This one is from Bait Sieb. It's titled, New Insights on Old Landscapes. This podcast provides new and fascinating perspectives on landscapes I've known for years. Rudy intersperses the interviews with helpful and fun explanations and analogies that help the geological concept stick. I really enjoy listening to this podcast, and I'm looking forward to the episodes to come. Keep up the good work, Rudy. Well, thanks, Bait Sieb. Speaking of helping other people find the show, why don't you send a link to a friend or family member you think might enjoy it? And consider supporting the show on Patreon. You can get cool stuff for yourself, like t-shirts, bumper stickers, shoutouts on the show, or even the chance to choose a topic for a mini-episode that I'll put out after this first season. But your support goes even further. With any support that I receive in November or December 2021, I'll donate half of it to Honor the Earth, which you heard about in Episode 5 and the bonus episode. After that, 10% of every month's proceeds will go to an organization related to the show. After Honor the Earth, January's donation will go to Friends of the Boundary Waters, who you heard about from Pete Marshall in Episode 5. So, supporting the show is good for you, good for the community, and it helps me keep making the show. Go for it. Now's the time. Thanks to those of you that are already a part of our Patreon community. There's a link to join at uofpod.org. Okay, so this episode is about caves. You might not associate Wisconsin with caves, and I know I didn't used to. I guess I thought they were things that maybe happened up in the mountains, tucked away. But when we're talking about the world under our feet, it might not always be solid rock. And in southwest Wisconsin, that's definitely the case. Why are caves here, and what can we learn from the caves in Wisconsin? Stay tuned to find out. Welcome to Under Our Feet, the podcast where we go deep into the earth and deep into time to discover the geologic events and forces that shape the world around us, where we write our human stories. This is Season 1, The Geology of Wisconsin. Okay, confession time. One of my deep fears is being in small spaces. Once, I was hiking in a slot canyon in southern Utah, and I had to take a little break in a slightly wider part of the slot. I was sure on that hot blue sky day that a storm was going to come and flood the canyon with us in it. It's clearly irrational, but the same thing happens to me in caves. 
I've been through a few where I had to squeeze through tight spaces on my belly. All I can think when I'm doing that is that I'm going to get stuck deep underground, and then what do you do? And just to clarify, these are well-developed Taurus caves that I'm in. I'm not doing anything even close to dangerous exploratory spelunking. But it doesn't matter that I know that hundreds of people have gone this exact same route thousands of times. I just know I'll be the one to get stuck. So you might say, hey Rudy, why do you keep doing that? Going in caves and slot canyons when you know you're going to react that way? Well, I can't resist it. I think Robert McFarlane said it really well in his excellent book, Underland. He said, quote, It's a fascinating and terrible place, and not one that can be born for long. It's that tension between terror and the fascination that makes these places irresistible. But luckily, or sadly, or however you want to look at it, I didn't go into any caves for this episode. I did talk to a few people who spend a lot of their time underground, teaching others and figuring out secrets about the past that these subterranean spaces hold. Let's start out with that first question. Why the heck do we have caves in southwest Wisconsin? Well, Wisconsin has karst topography, and karst topography is something that um, is indicative of, of caves. You might be saying, well, that doesn't really answer the question. What's a karst? It's a word that comes from the Mediterranean region. There's varying theories on its etymology, but many think it comes from the Slovenian word, cross. And this landscape is typified by the far northeastern reaches of Italy, near Trieste, where there's a limestone plateau known as Il Carso. And that limestone is key, as we'll hear about more in a minute, to karst topography. But for now, know that karst is a type of landscape that tells us that caves might be lurking below our feet. And our guide today through Wisconsin's karst landscape is... Um, well, my name is Jan Okeson, and I am the operations manager at Cave of the Mounds. I have been at Cave of the Mounds uh, in some capacity since 1988. I started as a high school tour guide and have slowly worked my way up through the ranks. Jan told me about some of the characteristics of this karst topography landscape. Features that hint that caves open up below. It's definitely uh, something you'll find in southwestern Wisconsin. There are lots of little sinkholes, disappearing streams are something that you find in karst topography. And uh, that is places and pockets in the earth where water can flow through more easily. So you might see a stream starting on the surface and then it'll hit an, a region that has karst topography and it will disappear in the earth and go through these cavities and caves and then pop out somewhere else. And those disappearing streams are something you can find commonly too in Wisconsin. These things, they almost feel surreal sometimes. Sinkholes that open up in the ground, streams that duck underground and pop out somewhere else. So just by looking at this above ground features and seeing sinkholes and disappearing streams and knowing a little bit more, like we do from episode four, that the rock type here is a dolomitic limestone, it's a pretty good bet that caves are there too. Why is that? Why, both in Il Carso in Italy and in this smaller karst landscape in southwest Wisconsin, why is the underland more like Swiss cheese than brick cheese? Our cave is a solution cave, and solution caves are formed from a dissolving action. And so we have uh, dolomitic limestone, and that limestone is easily dissolvable as far as rocks go, but a large amount of geologic time has to take place for, for the dissolving action to make something as big as a cave. The rocks are all carbonate 
rocks. And so the solution that happens is when water goes down through the limestone, it picks up some of that carbonic acid, which is coincidentally the same thing that's found in, in soda pops. And that will, if it spends amount of time, will start to slowly dissolve and erode the rock. So that chemical uh, erosion is very easier. It's more easily that, that that happens in limestone than in some of the other rocks. Um, say like the quartzite that's found up around Baraboo, that's a much, much harder rock. And so the limestone gets dissolved. And then over time, this, this hole gets bigger and bigger. Um, there's also some action in limestone with water running down through it and mechanically eroding it and creating these curvy, twisty maze sections. So caves form when, over time, slightly acidic water passes through the ground and meets a limestone. As we heard in episode 4, these rocks were deposited around 400 million years ago, when Wisconsin was covered by a shallow tropical ocean. They're made up of piles of shells of creatures, like those called foraminifera, that build their microscopic shells out of calcium carbonate. But calcium carbonate reacts to weak acids, like water that picked up slight acidity as it moved from the surface through soils on its way to the bedrock. Eventually, slowly, this dissolves away the rock. It's the same process as those scary public service announcements where they put teeth in a cup of Coca-Cola and show them dissolve completely. Well, your teeth are a form of calcium carbonate, and Coke has a weak carbonic acid in it. That's the same reaction as limestone and acidic water from the soils. So next time your dentist tells you that you have a cavity, tell them that you're just trying to develop your very own karst topography. Anyways, over time, this dissolution can create giant caverns. Where Jan works, Cave of the Mounds, just west of Madison, it's one of... Over 400 mapped caves. And there, the caves around us, there are, are some places where there's evidence of animals or native populations that have used those caves. Our cave is, is sort of a cave without a legend because it doesn't have a natural entrance. So the cave was found in 1939 with uh, Roosevelt's New Deal. After the Great Depression, there was quite a bit of projects locally that money was being put into to help out some of the locals. And so there was some road work going on in the area. And instead of trucking in large amounts of, of gravel, the gravel would come from the local farmers along the way. And so uh, the, the Brigham family, who at that time, Charles Brigham was the, was the patriarch of that, that farm. Uh, he leased a little bit of his land out so that uh, it could be used as a gravel quarry. They were blasting stone and unbeknownst to them, they were right above a cave that didn't have a natural entrance. So they blasted open on August 4th, 1939, this limestone rock. And as it fell and crushed to the earth, then there was this big black hole staring at these quarry workers. And that had to have been a very exciting day because, you know, think of everything you do on, on a daily basis. If suddenly you had a cave in front of you instead of what you were expecting, that's quite a turn of events. It just goes to show you never really know what's under your feet. Heck, it could just be nothing. So, over the rest of the 20th century, the Brigham family developed the cave, opened it up to tourists, and made it safe to enter and walk through. And people? And they came in, in droves. Um, there was even, uh, for a while, you could buy a train ticket from Chicago round trip uh, for $5, and you could come up and be dropped off at the, bike, at the 
they call it the bike trail because it's a bike trail now, but at the, where the railroad crosses just less than a mile south of the cave and walk up and see the cave and then go back on the train and go home and have dinner too. So it was an excursion to, to come and visit. And I've had guests stop in over the years. I had one gentleman who said that he and his brother biked 12 miles out to see it and camped in the field. <laughs> and it was big news. There's There were days when there was thousands and thousands of people, literally, you know, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 people that would come to visit in a day. And all those thousands of people who have visited the cave since it was found in 1939, they've hopefully learned a little something about the world beneath their feet. More recently, We've continued that that dedication to education, and up until COVID hit, we would have thousands of, of kids, tens of thousands of kids come every spring for field trips. COVID kind of changed that culture a little bit, but still to this day, we've tried to always put a very educational spin on it so that people can learn about the cave and appreciate it. And what better way is there to learn about geology, other than listening to certain podcasts, than standing right in the middle of it? underground and under the feet of those up above. For those kids that visit the cave on their school field trips, and this is close to home for me, my partner, Katie Demetz, who grew up around Madison and ended up majoring in geology in college, she visited Cave of the Mounds as a kid. And like all the other visitors, she picked up a bit of deep time perspective that can only serve you well to understand a bit better how we humans fit into the Earth's story but kids aren't the only ones who can learn something from caves. The rock we have is of, of Ordovician age. So it formed, the rock formed about 400 to 500 million years ago. And rock is kind of like a calendar page. You see, you know, like a historical record of what happened during that time frame on Earth. And geologists can learn a lot from that. They certainly can. In fact, the formations in Cave of the Mounds and other caves, like stalactites and stalagmites and flowstone and cave bacon strips, cave ribbons, um, all those different fun formations. They're really sort of a history lesson locked in there. There's so much information that is in there that we really haven't gotten to know yet, but it's, it's been a really interesting to learn more about all of that. Um, we've always been great friends with the, geo, the geosciences department at the University of Wisconsin and happened to build partnership with master's candidate Cameron Batchelor, who just happens to be our next guest. And an important note, Cameron finished her master's, stayed on for a doctorate, and is actually defending her PhD the day after I release this podcast. So as I record this, an early congratulations to Cameron. Likely, as you listen, she'll already be a cave doctor. Let's let her introduce herself, though. My name's Cameron Batchelor. I'm a fifth year PhD student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I'm studying geochemistry and paleoclimate. I'm also from North Carolina, as Rudy is. And I did my undergrad at Appalachian State University, looking at Devonian, really old rocks. I was doing geochemistry on those rocks. I wanted to transition to something, a project that had more relevance to more modern climate. So that's what led me to Wisconsin and this project and caves in general, because they or the work that I do encompasses the last quarter million years. So it's much younger than the 400 million year rocks I used to be studying. So that's what led me here. And that's who I am. Now, you as an astute listener, you might be wondering, these caves are holes in the earth defined by the absence of rock. 
So how the heck can they tell us about the history of the Earth and even about past climate? The key, it's in those cave formations that Jan told us about. It's a bit counterintuitive for me. Caves form by dissolving limestone, but they also have in them deposits of calcium carbonate, limestone, that were formed after the cavity was taken out. How can the rock be both dissolving and depositing all at the same time? Here's Cameron with an answer. Yeah, so caves are, as you may have seen or been to, they are these open cavities under the ground, uh, typically limestone, dolomite, and the reason they're open cave cavities is because limestone dissolves with acidic water. And so you form these large caverns underground that also produce stalagmites and stalactites. So stalactites hang on tight to the ceiling and stalagmites are on the ground. I don't know a fun rhyme for the <laughs> ground one. <laughs> um, I should really think that up before I graduate. But really the interesting part of caves that I look at are stalagmites, so the ones on the ground. And the reason those features are in caves is because once water falls from the sky, it lands on the ground surface and it percolates through the soil. It picks up carbon dioxide. And so this water gets slightly acidic. And once it completely percolates through the surface and enters a cave cavity, the air under the ground is relatively undersaturated in respect to carbon dioxide. So think of it like a soda can, you pop open the can, the CO2 escapes and you're left with calcite precipitation. There's something of a delicate balance at play here. The more carbon dioxide, which forms carbonic acid, that the water has in it, the more of that dissolved calcium carbonate it can hold. But if the carbon dioxide leaves the water and goes into the air, the water can't hold that dissolved calcium carbonate mineral anymore. It's not in balance, so it has to drop it and leave behind a tiny bit of solid mineral. And so stalagmites on the ground form these rings of calcite layers that are directly forming from rainwater um, because that's the water percolating through the soil, picking up calcite from the limestone bedrock, and they're precipitating as stalagmites inside the caves. So through time, you build up these calcite layers. And what my job is, is I go in there and I collect these samples. And if you slice them open, they're beautifully layered in rings, similar to tree rings. And you can think of them as past archives of rainwater. So like tree rings, these stalagmites in Southwest Wisconsin are like history books, telling us about the climate of the past. In tree rings, things like the size of each ring or its color can tell you about how good the growing season was in the year that the ring formed. With cave formations, speleothems, it's the chemistry of those tiny bits of calcite deposited each year that scientists look at. For Cameron, I'm interested in the oxygen component. So H2O is water, and that is what is forming and leading to the calcite precipitation. And um, interesting enough, oxygen has different types of isotopes. Isotopes, which you might remember from high school chemistry or from the local baseball team on the Simpsons TV show, or you might not. They're variations of the same element with different atomic weights. So elements are defined by the number of positively charged protons that they have in their nucleus. 
but there are also neutrons in there which don't have a charge. And you can change the number of neutrons without changing which element that atom is. The most familiar of these to you might be radioactive isotopes like uranium, which aren't stable. They decay into other elements by shedding protons, which is why the Simpsons baseball team was called the isotopes, given the large nuclear power plant right in town. But not all isotopes are unstable and radioactive. Some of the isotopes of oxygen, the ones Cameron is dealing with. It's a stable isotope, and they, many scientists refer to it as the light and heavy because one of the isotopes has more neutrons than the other one, and so it's slightly heavier. And the ratio between light and heavy oxygen can tell you about past temperature. This is a complicated system with lots of factors contributing, but I want to tell you about one reason why this is true. It's kind of cool. So oxygen has two main stable isotopes, 16 and 18. Both have eight protons, which makes them oxygen, but the light one, 16, has eight neutrons for an atomic weight of 16. The heavy one, 18, has 10 neutrons. What Cameron told us is that the ratio between the light and heavy oxygen isotopes in cave deposits can tell us about past temperature. One reason for this is literally because of how heavy the different isotopes are. When Earth is cold, more water is locked away in ice. When it's warmer, that ice melts and more of the planet's water is in liquid form. Here's why that matters to oxygen isotopes. Big ice sheets like those on Greenland or Antarctica, they form from the buildup of snow. That snow comes from water vapor that evaporated off the oceans and then precipitated. When water evaporates, it's harder to evaporate that heavier isotope, so water vapor in the atmosphere is depleted in oxygen-18 and relatively rich in oxygen-16. That means the snow that falls on the polar ice caps has more oxygen-16 than normal, and the water that's left behind has more oxygen-18. So after a long time of that snow building up, the ocean is more full of oxygen-18. And the rain that falls in Wisconsin in glacial cold periods has more heavy oxygen because more of the light oxygen is locked away in that glacial ice. Cameron and other scientists who study caves can measure these oxygen isotopes and gain some insight into how warm or cold the earth was when that water percolated into the cave and dropped behind a tiny bit of the mineral calcite. But that's not all. And it can also tell you about where your precipitation is coming from, because a fun example is where do you think most water comes from in Wisconsin? Like geographically, where do you think it's coming from the south or the west or the north? Do you have a guess? Cam was asking me, but I'm going to turn it around and ask you. Take a second and just make a guess. Where do you think the water in Wisconsin, the rain, comes from? Okay, let's find out. It's from the Gulf of Mexico, actually. So anyway, the oxygen isotope composition of the Gulf of Mexico air mass is different from the Pacific Ocean air mass, and it's different from the Arctic air mass. And so by measuring the oxygen in calcite which is for rainwater, I can actually go back in time and track where we're getting our water from. Pretty crazy. 
Just from these stalagmites, we can start to map out how air circulated across North America thousands and thousands of years ago. But that's still not all. Other scientists um, have looked at the carbon in, in the stalagmites. So the soil above the cave. I actually also look at this, but not with isotopes. You can actually image um, stalagmites, their layers. They record these seasonal fluorescent bands. So organic matter fluoresces really brightly and bands that form without organic matter are not as fluorescent. So if you actually go in with a special microscope, it's called a confocal fluorescent laser microscope. You can image these fluorescent bands and I can see past summers and winter, summer, winter throughout my samples. Which is wild. Cameron's samples can be hundreds of thousands of years old and she can see individual seasons back then. It's almost like time travel, opening a window to the past. Scientists have looked at cave deposits to gain insights into past climate for a long time, but most of those caves are in monsoon zones like Southeast Asia or South America or the southwest of the United States even, where lots of rain means lots of water moving through and depositing that mineral calcite, which is what makes up limestone. Cameron's cave here in Wisconsin it's in a completely different climate zone than those monsoon caves. Yeah, I guess I should also mention, as for the location of Cave of the Mounds and why it's special. So it was located close to the Laurentide Ice Sheet. The latitude is 43 degrees north, which makes it a mid-latitude cave. And if you look at cave records that have been published and studied, um, many of them are from tropical latitudes or areas where there's a monsoon region because you need lots of rain to actually form these stalagmites that have high enough growth rates where you can pull out relatively high resolution geochemical data. And so what's interesting about Cave of the Mounds is it's in the middle of North America. It's at 43 degrees latitude. We're not in a monsoon zone. And so what's interesting is the methods I'm using, I'm able to pull out a high resolution record even though the samples are very slow growing compared to most other cave records. So the location is very unique for a cave. There's not really mid-latitude caves and non-monsoon zones where you can pull out this high resolution of data. So what does Cameron learn from this unique paleoclimate record in a unique place? I was brought into this project in 2016 and a research scientist, his name is Ian Orland. He had done preliminary dating on a few samples from Cave of the Mounds because he knows the cave managers and the folks who run the cave over there and they were kind enough to let a sample. And what his data told us is that there are stalagmites growing through portions of the last 250,000 years at Cave of the Mounds. And specifically, this is interesting because 250,000 years is the oldest dated stalagmite in the upper Midwestern or in the Midwestern United States. So we knew this was an interesting cave. And from a climate standpoint, there's been three interglacial and glacial cycles throughout the past 250,000 years. So the Earth's climate, at least when we're not pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, 
it cycles back and forth between glacial periods, where massive ice sheets grow into the south, making it well into the United States, and interglacial periods, when that ice melts back up north. We're in an interglacial period today, so studying how those transitions happened in the past might give us some insight into what the future of our climate holds. Cameron's speleothems, they cover at least three of these cycles of glaciers advancing and retreating. My first task was to go in and date a lot more samples and get a better understanding of when exactly these samples were growing. Just by getting ages of samples in the speleothem, you get information. If you sample regularly, really close together across the stalagmite, you can see at what times it was growing and when it might not have been growing. And when we know when, we can start asking the more interesting question, why? But we saw samples pretty much grew throughout the last 250,000 years with an exception of a 30,000 year hiatus during the last glacial period, which we interpreted as permafrost being in the area and therefore all the water was frozen for 30,000 years and we had no calcite growth during that time. But besides that, there is lots of opportunity to go in and reconstruct records of past rainfall and temperature changes for the last 250,000 years. And specifically my project wanted to look at changes across specific transitions. So for example, a transition from a glacial to interglacial period, a cold to warm period, because that relates to future uh, climate change with warming temperatures. There are lots of farmers here in the Midwest and it's still relatively uncertain what exactly is going to happen with warming temperatures because the amount of seasonal data that we have that constrains how climate has changed under different forcings is lacking. And so I've identified key parts of the last 250,000 years where these relatively abrupt transitions have occurred and I'm trying to quantify how seasonal climate is changing. This, it's what makes understanding the past so important. It helps us understand an increasingly uncertain future. This is a big value of geology and a great reason to listen to this podcast. We can use the past as a way to peer into our future. One of the best examples of this is, so in the past, in the, so they call it the last glacial period. So during this time, the Greenland ice sheet was much bigger and they called it the Laurentide ice sheet and actually covered pretty much all of Canada and reached down in Wisconsin. And what's interesting is you can take cores of Greenland ice and because ice is pushed down, there's constantly snow accumulation. You get these really beautiful annual layers and Many scientists have figured out during the last glacial period, there are these crazy abrupt warmings of up to 10 degrees Celsius in under a decade that occurred in Greenland. They call them Dansgaard Oshgar or DO events, named after the person who first identified them in the geochemical record. So, all is to say, there are these abrupt warm events in Greenland that were occurring. We're going into the future, it's going to get warmer. How did the mid-continent of North America respond under abrupt warming events in the northern latitude? Right now, we know Greenland is melting at rapid rates. It's being affected. 
is this linked to mid-latitude, mid-continental North American climate? This is still uncertain. The climate record at Cave of the Mounds, if when we measured oxygen across that time period, we actually detected abrupt events similar in timing and magnitude of these Greenland warm events. And so we're relatively certain that this is a signal that when these warmings were occurring in Greenland, they were also occurring relatively simultaneously in mid-continental North America. And this tells us that the northern latitudes and our location are more connected than we previously thought. Therefore, this melting in Greenland, the warming of the Arctic could be representative. Okay, the Midwest is gonna be warming at alarming rates as well. So that's just one exciting result that we found with this work. So yeah, looking at the past, there's also an example about 125,000 years ago, they call this the last interglacial period. So it was the last time in Earth's history, it was as warm, if not warmer than today. And there's a dominant forcing in terms of climate from the sun, it's called insulation. So that's the amount of energy we get from the sun. And if you look at the insulation um, forcing 125,000 years ago during the last interglacial period, it was actually a lot greater than today which is why some people think perhaps it was warmer. So I have a sample that grew during the last interglacial period. And it's very interesting because I'm able to pull out seasonality and I'm able to see, okay, were winters wetter or drier or summers wetter or drier? And my results aren't published yet, but I'm pretty sure what I'm finding is winters were very dry and summers were very wet and warm. So this could be indicative of a warming climate. Our summers are gonna be getting warmer. So caves are a way that the past holds the key to the future. Here in Southwest Wisconsin, scientists like Cam go underground and learn about the climate thousands or hundreds of thousands of years ago. But this sense of discovery is not just limited to scientists. Anyone can visit Cave of the Mounds, and many people do. And if it doesn't already, that number could include you. If anybody wants to learn more, our website, caveofthemounds.com, it's pretty easy to figure out there, <laughs> but our website has virtual links. We also have a, a 3D version or a, a virtual version of going through the cave. And so if for some reason somebody wasn't able to make it out and they wanted to see the cave, you can do that digitally. And it's really neat because you can even go into one area that people can't walk through. And there's all sorts of little YouTube videos and clips on geodes and rocks and fossils too. So um, there's a lot of outreach on our, on our website. People can, can tour. And then my last favorite, favorite fun fact about the cave is that, you know, it's really an experience for all ages. It's um, something that anybody can enjoy and it is open all year round because caves stay the same temperature all year round. So it's 50 degrees under the earth, about 10 Celsius. And every day, except for Thanksgiving, Christmas Eve, and Christmas Day, we have tours through the cave. So if you're not a skier or a snowboarder, the, the cave is like your tropical vacation in Wisconsin. It's 50 degrees. It's gorgeous. <laughs> and so whatever the season, there's something, something fun to see out of the Cave of the Mounds. So I hope all of your listeners will, will come and visit us at some point. You really should. 
Or if you're not from here, look and see if you have a local cave that you could visit. Especially if you have kids, it's an amazing setting to let them explore their sense of wonder, and your own too. I used to teach elementary school in Montana, and one of the most fun days of my years there was taking my first and second grade class to Lewis and Clark Caverns near Butte. And while you're underground, while you're under other people's feet, remember what it took to form the cave that you're in. If you're in a limestone cave like Cave of the Mounds, it took an ancient ocean where tiny microscopic critters made shells out of calcium carbonate and fell to the ocean floor to eventually solidify as a limestone rock. Then that rock had to get lifted back up near the surface where rainwater could percolate through soil, picking up carbon dioxide and becoming slightly acidic with carbonic acid, the same as a soft drink or your favorite sparkling water. That acidity was enough over thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of years to slowly dissolve cavities, eventually forming a cave. And then with that cavity, when water made it through full of carbonic acid and dissolved limestone and was exposed to the air, the carbon dioxide was released out of the water back into the cave's atmosphere. Then the water couldn't hold the dissolved limestone anymore, and so it deposited a little tiny bit of the mineral calcite, which makes up limestone. Over thousands and thousands of years, those tiny bits of calcite add up to form layered structures like the beautiful stalagmites and stalactites that we wonder at underground. And locked in that mineral are snapshots of climates of the past, a story written in stone that scientists like Cameron can read and share, helping us understand our past and our future. All that just under our feet. For listening, and thanks to Cam Batchelor and Jan Okeson for sharing with us today. If you liked what you heard, consider helping out the show. Leave a quick rating or review and send a link to a friend. If you're moved, you can support the show on Patreon and get cool rewards started at just a dollar a month. There's a link at uofpod.org. And a reminder that half the money I receive in December 2021 will go to Honor the Earth, which you learned about in episode 5. After December, each month I'll donate 10% to an organization doing work to enhance our public connection to the natural world. Next up in January is Friends of the Boundary Waters. The remainder of your support helps me make the show. It takes a lot to put these episodes together, and your support makes it possible. A link is at uofpod.org. And thanks also to the American Geophysical Union, Jeremy Randolph Flagg, and Katie Demetz for their support of the show. See you next time for the surprising story of lead mining, which it turns out is the origin of the Wisconsin Badger nickname.